MSW Media. The first public impeachment hearing in decades is about to begin. What can we expect? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name's Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. I'm usually joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, but she's on the campaign trail, so I'm going to be bringing in Asha Rangappa in a minute. But I just want to mention that this episode is brought to you by our patrons, with special thanks to Michelle Dew, Eric DeHurst, Edie, James Frohmeyer, Jamie Gordon, and Steve Hungsberg. You can become a patron, too, on our website at ontopicpodcast.com. Just click the support link at the top of the page. So now I'm going to bring in Asha Rangappa. She's a former FBI counterintelligence agent. She's a professor at Yale University. She's a CNN legal and national security analyst. She's also my friend and a frequent uh, guest on this podcast. So let's bring in Asha. Welcome back, Asha. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Renato. Always fun times. Yeah, <laughs> no kidding. Well, it's it's crazy. This is what the, only the fourth time that we've had a public impeachment inquiry of a president of the United States. Historic moment. Um, but I I can't help feeling like in some ways it's a little bit anticlimactic. I understand it's being built up, but... We already know a lot of what has been said in private. I'm sure there's going to be some moments on TV, and I'm sure these moments are going to matter for the public. But I feel like so many of the facts are out there, and we know what happened, um, that you know we kind of know how this is going to play out a little bit. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, you know, I, I also think that compared to the last impeachment, which would have been Bill Clinton, you know, we're just in a different media ecosystem where it's just 24 seven um, and people are inundated. So it doesn't have the same. I, I agree with you that it feels anticlimactic. Like I just I remember the Clinton impeachment, you know, proceedings and things like that. It, it was it felt much more momentous than now. And I just wonder if it was because of I, I don't know, the fact that we didn't have social media and, and weren't inundated all the time with kind of the same stories over and over again. Yeah, we were both in law school at the time. And yep. I remember seeing the getting, we got that star report. I read it. I'm sure you did. We, everybody, it seemed like everybody was reading that thing. And then the impeachment happened very quickly. I mean, the House, you know, zipped through the process. The investigation had already been done by somebody else. Uh, and, you know, we very quickly got to, well, what is the Senate going to do about it? Here, um, the the House is conducting the investigation, and so they actually are doing a real investigation. And certainly, the repetition of ideas is important, and, the you know, a lot of people aren't paying attention. And also, I would say, in the public eye, um, you know, there's, there's you know, having something said on television is going to matter way more than it being said in a transcript. But so I understand why it's all being done this way. But if you're paying a lot of attention, which we are, and I suspect the listeners of this podcast are, um, you're going to, after a certain point, you're like, yeah, I kind of, I got it. I, I read this the first time, right? No, I think that's right. I do think you hit on something, Bernardo, and it, it might be good during the course of our conversation for this podcast to, um, maybe address some of the big myths or, you know, misinformation that, that's kind of been out there or, or at least delve into it. I mean, one of, you know, early on, one of the issues that Republicans had was that these were happening behind closed doors, these depositions, um, you know, the president didn't have counsel and, you know, all of that stuff. And, I, and, and there were a lot of comparisons being made to Clinton um, and even Nixon. And I'm wondering, I mean, for me, I think it's a huge difference that both, uh, you know, Nixon, you had um, a special prosecutor, Leon Jaworski, who, you know, gave uh, Congress a, a roadmap. In Clinton, you had the Starr Report. I mean, there was an investigation that had been conducted before it, before the political process sort of took over. And I think that there's a fundamental difference where, where here the House 
was effectively starting from scratch. I mean, they had this whistleblower complaint. So they were really doing the work of what a prosecutor would be doing. You know, and I know it's been compared to a grand jury, but I just think that often those comparisons with the previous ones ignored the fact that there had been a very lengthy investigation conducted by prosecutors with the help of the FBI before, you know, that the House took over. Yeah, I think that's an important point, Asha. I, I agree with that. You know, and that's like w- w- a moment ago I was drawing the comparison with the Star Report. Well, that was literally a very lengthy report compiled by a team of federal prosecutors uh, and, you know, who were assisted, as you point out, by FBI agents. And it was already it was like in the lap of Congress. All they had to do is read it. And Starr even told him, here's what the impeachable offenses were, in his opinion. It was kind of an unusual situation where you had a, a a lawyer in a, under a different statute, the independent counsel statute, de- determining for himself what he believed was an impeachable offense. You know, here you've got the House, like you said, starting from scratch and conducting an investigation and trying to get to the bottom of what happened. thought that was um, – I, I agree. I think this is a very different thing. Um, and, you know, so for the first time, I mean, I, you know, the, the public, I think, doesn't know what to make of these people. I mean, look, I – you know, I will tell you if Bill Taylor – uh, pass me on the street. I wouldn't wouldn't blink. I don't know what really what the guy looks like. I've seen a photo or two of the guy, but I don't know him. I've read his testimony. Uh, you know, but you know, I you know, I, I and I imagine what he'll say. But I certainly think my impression of him could be shaped tomorrow when we watch him on television. So I think even for people like us, you know, we're discovering things, and I'm sure there's going to be questions and answers tomorrow that weren't didn't come before, and that's just because there hasn't been the level of investigation that you might expect to have already been done because this wasn't handled by criminal authorities thus far. Yeah, and I think, I I actually think a better comparison for the impeachment hearings are the Iran-Contra hearings, because that was where, I mean, I guess there there was a special prosecutor there also, and then the congressional investigation was happening, I think, was it parallel or, or uh, yeah, it was happening at the same time. Um, and, you know, it wasn't an impeachment hearing, but I think it was similar in the sense that there was this basically huge foreign policy scandal that had been kind of blown open. Um, I believe it was by reporting, uh, I think, by the New York Times or something. I mean, it, it was uh, exposed. And then people are learning through this parade of witnesses, like what's happening and who knew what, when, et cetera. Um, and that, that had a lot of drama, as I recall. I was very young. Um, I, that was 1987. Is that right? And, um, but I just, I mean, I had this like permanent imprint in my mind of, you know, Ollie North with his hand up, mm-hmm. you know, testifying like day after day. Yeah. Um, and people really debating like, you know, what, what did Reagan know, and who was in charge of it, and, and all of this kind of stuff. I, I, I think in terms of um, both in, in, in substance, actually, in a lot of ways, in, in like the allegations, um, but also in the way that it's unrolling, I think that that is a better comparison, um, even though it wasn't an impeachment hearing, than, say, like Clinton or, or Nixon. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, certainly compared to Clinton, I lived through the Iron Contra affair, and I also lived through uh, the Clinton impeachment. Uh, although we, as you point out, we were a lot younger back in those days, but still, I, you know, there, I think this is a lot more like Iran Contra, of course, which is very much a forgotten scandal. I don't think it's something that people talk about much. Uh, it didn't have quite the impact long term, and that was partly because, um, you know, the Republicans I thought uh, were able to do a pretty good job of der- derailing that uh, investigation. And partly that was due to the the Congress made a misstep by giving Oliver North immunity that ultimately undid his criminal prosecution. And then you also have Bill Barr playing a role in getting President, then President George Herbert Walker Bush to pardon a bunch of folks. That's right. But, you know, I think the some of the legal issues are similar in a way. Mm-hmm. So for your listeners um, who are not as old as we are um, <laughs> and don't, don't really understand what Iran-Contra was about, um, basically you had Congress uh, which passed what were known as the Boland Amendments, which prohibited any funds from being used to finance um, the Contras, which was essentially a rebel group that was uh, fighting against the communist-backed Sandinista government um, or socialist government. In El Salvador. Mm -hmm. In El Salvador, exactly. 
And so basically Congress had put the kibosh on this money going. I believe it was because there were some human rights concerns, you know, that were going on there. And so the Reagan National Security Council um, tried to do an end run around Congress's prohibition by using money from the sale of arms to Iran from Israel um, and diverting those to the Contras. That's pretty much it, right? Yeah, I mean, basically, yeah. And then the arms were sold also with some hostages released on between Iran and... So it gets very complicated, but essentially the the Reagan NSC was trying to end run this constitutional prohibition on funds being used for the contras. Um in that in that way it's it's very similar in that Congress had exercised its power of the purse, which is to say funds can't be used for this purpose. So they can say funds can't be used for something, they can say funds should be need to be used for this purpose. Um and basically, you know, he circumvented that authority. Um and you know, there he Reagan's ultimate defense was that he had no idea what was happening. Um, so we didn't get the full plethora of defenses because he just claimed that he had no idea. Um, but so many of the same issues are raised, which is, you know, could he have said it was, you know, foreign policy? Um, what if this is a issue that he believes is in the best interest of the United States? You know, so there's all kinds of things. Um, but it was a scandal because he had broken the law. Uh, circumvented Congress and um, was engaging in um, this kind of shadow foreign policy, basically. Yeah, I mean, of course, the important difference is that there, I think most people believed, rightfully so, that that Reagan and his administration really believed that supporting the Contras was in the best interest of the United States. We were in the middle of a cold cold war. the 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 uh, and you know the Sandinistas were 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 backed by the Soviet Union, um, but uh, here obviously you know there's no national interest in investigating Joe Biden as, and his son. Although um, that appears to be one of the main arguments that Republicans have right now. I mean they're in this box. You know one thing I've written a little bit about is that I I really think that Republicans at this point pretty much have to admit that there's a quid pro quo. I wrote a column uh, for Politico saying, you know, the president has no defense. And I don't think he does. On the, I think the the public hearings will make this crystal clear. There's just so many people who are going to get on the witness stand and testify um, that there was a quid pro quo, that I think he's going to have to admit that. Um, yep. But, you know, psychologically, he can't. Uh, which is so Republicans are stuck with, well, it was in the country's best interest to investigate Joe, Joe Biden's son. And so, it's, you know, it was totally legitimate for the president of the United States to hold up this aid that was appropriated by Congress in order to achieve that. That's right. Um, yeah. And I, I wrote a piece for Medium on this. And I actually made the Iran-Contra parallel. And I think you're exactly right. I think that you know, at the end of the day, like Reagan could have had some colorable claim that he was fighting communism, which is also what we were doing. Um, I I don't see any plausible way that Trump has a uh, national or foreign policy interest in what he was asking Ukraine to do. And here, you know, I just point out, we don't ask other countries to prosecute our citizens who are already in our jurisdiction under their laws, when we have perfectly available tools on our end. I mean, our corruption laws, and you would know better than I, Renato, are quite robust. Um, We have, you know, entire public corruption squads in the FBI and teams in, in, you know, in U.S. attorney's offices that investigate this at all levels of government. Um, You know, it's not clear to me uh, why you would need a third country to do this. And not only that, but typically... As a country, we have resisted foreign jurisdiction over our citizens, precisely, you know, partly because, um, you know, we want to maintain our assertion that our legal system and judicial system is the fairest and most reliable, um, and also to protect our own citizens. And if you just think about it, Renato, like, imagine, like, well, if, if this was a serious ask, what was going to be the end game? Like, let's say Ukraine investigated and decided to prosecute Biden. Like, what was going to happen at that point? Like, was Trump planning to extradite the former vice president 
to Ukraine? I mean, it makes no sense when you start actually thinking about how this would even work, let alone the fact that it's not anything that the United States has ever done before um, with another country. Yeah, I, I have to say, uh, it's pretty clear to me from all the testimony thus far that Trump wasn't even interested in an investigation. I mean, it was, he was interested in an announcement on cable news that he could hear that would say that there was an investigation just to create a cloud around Biden because he had a, uh, a, a formula that had worked in 2016, which was creating a cloud around Hillary Clinton. Uh, and I think he thought that he needed to do the same thing to Biden in order to beat Biden. That's right. And I think, you know, one thing, and, I, and the, the media, and I don't think the hearings are going to focus on this, but I think it's really significant, is exactly what you said. He wanted the announcement which means that what he was interested in was shaping the perception of voters by making it appear as though Ukraine had on its own decided that there were grounds, you know, reasonable suspicion, probable cause to investigate these people. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, then he could point to it and say, aha, see, I'm not, you know, they've come to this conclusion. So there were going to be no, put it, the, the point is there were going to be no U.S. fingerprints on it. They, no, nobody was going to come out and say, we asked them to do this. They were going to hide that part. And that's propaganda, Renato. It is. Like that is out and out black propaganda. That is pretending that something is happening without like revealing the true source of the information. Um, it is also illegal um, in the United States for the government to do that against, you know, for to manipulate political processes. But, you know, I think that is just astonishing. Well, even if it wasn't involving a foreign country, I mean, if what was happening was Trump had, you know, had a deal with some U.S. law enforcement agency, like, hey, you know, uh, whatever, Delaware prosecutor, you know, so-and-so, will you create some sort of cloud of suspicion around Joe Biden? That would be really helpful for me. Could you do me that favor uh, for in exchange for anything? And the person's like, yes, uh, I'll do that. That would be diabolical on its own. I mean, the, and here, you know, of course, Trump ostensibly controls uh, the FBI and Justice Department. He certainly could direct Bill Barr if he thought that, to, that there was something to it to look into, um, you know, this in this matter. If he thought that there was something legitimate there, I mean, obviously, it's not what we want presidents to be doing either: is launching political investigate politically uh, minded investigations or politically, I should say. Um, influence investigations but but nonetheless he didn't even do that i mean he's going to another country which by the way i think is in many ways attests to how hard it would be to create a sham investigation at least on the federal level like yeah i i have no doubt that trump would have done that if it were possible um but you know i just point that out since one of the other narratives is that you know the 2016 investigation was a deep state conspiracy. It's it's really hard uh, to create a sham investigation um, in the FBI and in conjunction with the U.S. Attorney's Office. Well, it's interesting. I mean, one thing that's an interesting uh, twist here, of course, is that there was news recently that Trump wanted Barr to come out and exonerate him and say, oh, I did nothing wrong. And Barr apparently, apparently refused to do that. Now, Trump denies all of that, but, you know, he would deny the sky was blue if it was in his interest. Um, I, I will just it's say it's like deja vu. I mean, that's exactly what he did with Comey, too. Well, right. I mean, what's interesting to me is just that Barr said no. I, I you know, it's it's very interesting that Barr is trying to distance himself and the Justice Department from this from day one. He, they've always sort of kept this at arm's length. And it's interesting. You know, I, I don't know exactly why that is, uh, because Barr was willing to, you know, deliberately mislead the public in regarding the Mueller investigation. Uh, Maybe he feels more confident in his standing with Trump. Maybe there's even more to drop and he's concerned about, you know, being tied to this in any way. But it is an interesting difference. He doesn't have bar running interference this time. No, I think that's right. I think that's right. The other thing that I think is interesting and worth talking about is the Republican witness list, because we're all looking ahead. You know, this this podcast is being recorded the day before um, the hearings begin publicly. And, uh, you know, the Republicans are certainly going to make an issue. You can expect that Devin Nunez, uh, you know, in his opening statement, will talk about how the Republicans want to call certain witnesses. They really want to call the whistleblower. They really want to call Hunter Biden and a bunch of others, including someone I know, Alexandra Chalupa and others. 
Um, you know, and a lot of I would, you know, I would call their witness list in general. I would characterize it as a kind of a distraction, uh, and that's often what the defense case is. I mean, the defense case when there's when the government's got a strong case in a criminal case, you, the defense case is all about distraction um, and trying to present various shiny objects objects to the jury to get the jury to focus on something other than the important evidence in the case, and that's kind of how I would characterize. Um, those witnesses, although some of them you could you could defend, I think, as witnesses that would have something to say about the about the issue here. Yeah, I, I said on Twitter that this is OJ calling the real killers to the stand. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, which witnesses on the Republicans list do you think are legit or could add? actual value to the information, to, to the case, I guess. Well, well, tangentially, the best argument that you could make probably for the ones that matter, you know, the ones that people are interested in, is actually Hunter Biden, but for really, really? really convoluted reasons. So Hunter Biden is not under investigation here. His conduct doesn't matter. If, whether, if he's corrupt or not is irrelevant to the charges against Trump, right? Um, right. So, and Trump should not benefit. Can you, can you, can you spell that out though for your listeners? I mean, yes. So let me, let me explain. Yeah, that's a great point. I, yeah, I should make this super clear. So the person who is under an inquiry here is Donald Trump. His actions are under investigation by the House. Ultimately, if there's a Senate trial, his actions, his conduct will be at issue. And what that, what, what that means is he's the defendant here, effectively in a criminal case. And what matters is, did he do it or did he not do it, right? Not whether or not some other guy was doing something else. That's irrelevant. Can I play devil's advocate? Well, sure. I'm telling you, I, I think there's an argument to be made here. So that's why I am. That's why I am. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think you're right. Um, and I think where the GOP also benefits from this is that if they can say that there was any reasonable ground um, on which to suspect Hunter Biden, I guess, then the ask would have been legitimate. Right. I think what he's going to say, well, yeah, this is going to go towards Trump's intent was what the Republicans would argue. If I was the Republicans attorney, what I would be arguing is we're not offering Hunter Biden as a witness or not asking for him as a witness because we want to prove up any allegations about Burisma. Okay. Well, you understand that that's irrelevant, but what is relevant is Donald Trump's genuine belief about these subjects. And, you know, what we want to show through Hunter Biden's testimony is that Trump had genuine reasons to be concerned about Hunter Biden's activities. Now, the reality is, of course, that the better witness for that would be Trump, because what matters is what Trump thought, not what, you know, actually Hunter Biden did. Because even if Hunter Biden was doing whatever, that doesn't mean Trump was aware of that. Uh, all it means is that, you know, you could prove that Biden had done whatever he was going to do. And I, I think we can all expect, too, that Biden's going to, you know, would come up there and say he did nothing wrong. I, I think the other issue, of course, is, you know, the, the GOP here would be benefiting from Trump's misdeeds. In other words, Trump was trying to, um, you know, uh, induce, abuse his power by inducing a foreign government to, uh, announce an investigation into Biden's son, and here you would be, you know, putting that front and center and allowing him to benefit from his misconduct, which, of course, in you know, in some instances, he's he's benefited from his misconduct in the past. So there's a lot of reasons to deny Hunter Biden as a witness, but he's somebody who you could make a legitimate argument for. Whereas some of these people, there's just no argument uh, that you could be made that could be made. You know, if, if this was a criminal trial. A judge would not take seriously the idea that the whistleblower has to be called, or um, you know that the you know the uh, Nelly Orr or <laughs> Alexandria Chalupa or whatever. None of those people matter to what Trump did, you know, with the Ukrainian money or something. You know, a more interesting request for the Dem Republicans would be like, we want to call the president of the Ukraine of Ukraine, or call a foreign minister to Ukraine or something, and you know. Obviously, their testimony would be problematic because they have a lot of reasons to want to please the president of the United States. Um, but, you know, there's often the case, for example, when there are people who have been victims of human trafficking. You know, there'll be, you know, I've, you know, had situations where women who were victimized uh, would, none, would, would testify to help the man, the man who victimized them uh, for various all sorts of psychological reasons. They would do that. And, you know, that testimony would be helpful to the defendant, but obviously 
uh, a jury could understand the problematic nature of it and see through that, and, and presumably the American people could. But that would be a more legitimate sort of witness for them to call. It's called the Ukrainians because the, the Republicans try to make the argument that the Ukrainians you know, said they didn't feel pressured, although I suspect that the testimony, if, and if there was examination by Democratic lawyers and staffers, would not, uh, it would not be quite as clean as, as the Republicans are suggesting it is. In other words, it, it wouldn't come out that way where, oh, yeah, we felt no pressure at all. I don't think that would actually, it would actually come out that way if there was actual testimony. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, and at least from the U.S. foreign policy side, it sounds like there were officials like Bill Taylor who had to keep assuaging the Ukrainians on that the aid would be forthcoming. I mean, they were concerned about it. They knew it was being withheld. Um, they did feel somewhat under pressure. And I think Bill Taylor, in his opening statement, even said there, there was, I guess, they were on the cusp of making this announcement, and he had to call and confirm that they weren't going to make the announcement, um, I guess, because there was some question on whether you know, they were going to follow through with that. Um, I think the big hurdle for the Republicans is going to be like just the parade of witnesses. These are all, you know, career foreign service people, um, Trump's own team um, who are going to come out and just say the same things over and over again, uh, that they were concerned by the shadow foreign policy. It was not in the national security interests of the United States. Uh, they believed that it was wrong. Um, so, you know, I think you're right. Like, ultimately, the only thing that the Republicans can really hang their hat on is this idea that Trump had no idea that it was wrong. <laughs> I right. I mean, I think, you know, there's the, the ways you could go here, right, are, you know, the first is it didn't happen. That's that's Trump you know, where he is right now. It was all perfect. I didn't do anything wrong. You know, I didn't actually do it. There's no quid pro quo. I think, as you're pointing out, Asha, that's not going to survive all this testimony. And then you're really left with a couple things. One is, well, it didn't matter. It didn't succeed. That's what Nikki Haley was saying today. Didn't matter. Didn't succeed, of course, which is irrelevant legally. And, you know, it's often the case. I've prosecuted, you know, uh, men who uh, went to a bank with, BB guns and ski masks, and the the teller saw him coming from across the street and locked the doors and hid behind their desk and called the police. Well, they got caught. Uh, they didn't rob the bank. No money was taken. They didn't even enter the bank. But obviously, they're guilty of attempted bank robbery because they were literally at the door of the bank with <laughs> guns and uh, and ski masks and so forth. So, you know the the um, uh, the the this is some of the similar thing. Okay, the whistleblower filed a report. Within a few days, the aid got released because there was all this mounting pressure and a whistleblower report and so on. Um, you know, that doesn't mean that, you know, this just means he got caught. Um, you know, it's, you know, bizarre. Um, you know, no, no one would let their spouse off the hook if they caught them at the house of the, the person they were having an affair with before the, the act was completed or something. I mean, right, exactly. Well, you know, you caught me in the bedroom before we got to business. I mean, it's bizarre. So, um, you know that, but it's it. They may do that, and and then also I think there's this sort of well, it's bad but not impeachable, and I think that's the smart Republican argument. That's you know all sorts of people have been making the Peggy Noonan and Andrew McCarthy and Rich Lowry and all these Republicans are starting to make that argument, and I think more people are going to come around to that. I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of senators end up you know moving their lips and saying that um, because it's something that is harder to harder to argue with. It's a more defensible position. Yeah. So I have two questions for you, and maybe the second one we can save till the end, because I think it'll be the ultimate question. So the first one is, you know, the Trump defense, or whatever his defenses are going to be, are incredibly complicated by the fact that Giuliani is involved in this entire shenanigan. <laughs> uh, <Sure>. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, so, again, to kind of do the Iran-Contra parallel, like, you know, regular using, like, actual people who work for the government. Right. Oliver North was like a colonel or whatever he was, yeah. right? Oliver North was a colonel, yes, the national security team, the CIA, uh, you know, um, which in many ways kind of made it sketchy, but also at least there's all, like, actual government people. And here you have – it's just astonishing to me, to be honest with you, Renato, that – 
Giuliani was in so deep and involved in um, talking to these officials, and I, I'm surprised that it actually just took this one whistleblower, like that none of these people felt compelled to say anything about that, because that seems really weird to me that they would be like, why am I talking to Rudy Giuliani about what the president of Ukraine should say? Well, I think when this is all over, there's going to be a lot of discussion about why the people in this administration feel like all these disturbing things were worth gossiping about in private, but not doing anything about tangibly. I mean, in this particular case, we have, for example, you know, the national security advisor, uh, John Bolton, Say, you know, telling everyone it's like a drug deal. I want to have nothing to do with this. This is Mulvaney's thing. You know, send a cable to Pompeo. Uh, all these things. But he didn't want to get anywhere near this. But he did. He he didn't do anything himself to get out there and try to stop this from happening. And so, uh, you know, I got to say, um, you know, it's 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 an interesting psychology. I don't completely understand uh, with this administration is why people will enable things that they themselves find disturbing. I mean, we heard the news this week that you know allegedly, although it's been denied by Nikki Haley, that. John Kelly and um, um, and uh, and uh, one Rex Tillerson. Thank you, Rex Tillerson. I was going to say someone else. Rex Tillerson came to her and you know said you know we're the adults in the room and let's save Trump from himself basically. And you know it, it, it would seem to me that if the the these senior people, Secretary of State and White House Chief of Staff, believe that about the President of the United States, they'd have a duty to inform the public and their elected representatives uh, and not keep this to themselves. Of course, now there have been allegations in the past, you know, to get back to our Iran-Contra, you know, uh, theme here, you know, Reagan in his final years, uh, there's been some speculation and discussion about how he maybe had early onset dementia and, you know, there was, you know, other people who had assumed a bigger role in the White House than perhaps they should have. But, you know, it's a different problem uh, than the, the issue here. Um, so I, I, I really don't understand uh, the psychology here other than, you know, there are there have been a lot of, of people on the right who've said publicly that Trump is their only hope to have anything approaching what they will what they will call. And I'm putting it in air quotes because I don't it doesn't seem very conservative to me, a quote, conservative, unquote, agenda. Um, and that's it. They're willing to kind of sacrifice everything to that cause. Yeah. And let me point out one more thing with the Giuliani you know, mm-hmm. connection or whatever. Um, because I think this piece doesn't get as much airtime as the Biden stuff. But it's also important to remember that the there were two asks, right? Like one was to make this announcement about investigating the Bidens. But the second part of that was also to investigate that they were going to get to the bottom of the 2016 election interference. Um, and you know, this idea of trying to, I guess, create a decoy uh, that would then displace blame from Russia to Ukraine um, in terms of who was actually responsible for the 2016 election interference. Um, so so there's, you know, I, I guess the way I think of it is that there's a forward-looking aspect, which is, you know, smear these people so that I can get an election benefit, you know, moving forward in the 2020 election, but also discredit this entire investigation that happened because of the 2016 election interference in a way, by the way, that obviously benefits Russia um, and you know, that potentially provides cover for Trump to do things like pardon people who were, you know, in, uh, implicated in Mueller's investigation, um, or as many people have said, lift sanctions on Russia. So there is this other bigger kind of Russia connection that I think is important for people to know. Um, and I think that the House has, uh, I mean, they have been involved in trying to get uh, the grand jury material released, right, for, from the Mueller report. And I think this is where that would become relevant. In other words, it's not the Mueller investigation per se, but it's how that informs what Trump was up to in wanting these two things from Ukraine. That's my understanding. Yeah, I have to say there's definitely something weird in terms of Trump's uh, relationship with Russia. He always, you know, we had this recent news article about how he 
tried to call off having one of our ships in the Black Sea because it might upset mm-hmm. Russia. You know, very, uh, very odd. Uh, or J- Mick Mulvaney trying to stop the Javelin missile sales because it might spoke, uh, spark a reaction from the Russians. I mean, it's all, you know, it's a little unusual. And there's, there's definitely something there. I think a lot of listeners to this podcast think there's a lot there. Um, it's, it's not the focus here, but there is an element and a connection. I mean, one thing that's interesting with this administration is there's always a lot of these themes continue. I mean, we, we just found out today, of course, that, you know, Trump had conversations about firing the, uh, the, uh, inspector general who, general, f- yep. who found that the whistleblower was credible and, you know, essentially was protecting the confidentiality of the whistleblower. I mean, it's the same stuff uh, again and it makes sense that trump of course wants to fire anybody who's obeying the law because you know he did that before he had fired comey he fired uh he you know he he i think you know he fired comey wanted he fired mccabe wanted to fire Mueller, uh fired many you know multiple others uh at various times and um you know he suffered no consequences so i think you know his uh, takeaway is I can do what I want to do. I mean, actions speak louder than words. And there can be a lot of people upset about the fact uh, that Trump wanted to fire Mueller, but no one cared. Uh, in the end, it didn't affect his presidency. There's no consequence for him. And so I think, you know, he views himself as being able to do it again. So we're, we see a lot of the same parallels because I think we're starting to learn who he is. And if he is remains in office and is reelected, uh, then we are going to, to see more of this behavior, I would I would presume. Yeah, and uh, I have to be honest, I've been a pretty staunch institutionalist during this administration that I think overall our institutions will hold. I think this scandal vindicates that to some degree, that even many of his own team and his appointees have found his behavior over the top, but I'm not really sure that it can survive another four years, to be honest. Yeah, I I don't know. You know, I am... You know, I'm very much uh, a realist about how institutions work. Uh, you know, I, one thing that I am careful about, I, I I hear you. I think that our institutions matter. I think that the principles that we have matter. But I have to say, you know, a parody of that position is, is Rod Rosenstein. I mean, Rod Rosenstein, if you recall, appeared on Twitter for a short time and criticized <laughs> a number of people, particularly me. Him and I had a back and forth. I think he referred to me as some sort of pundit or whatever. Oh, he to be able to fund it too. So we're oh, you, you as well. We're all both pundits. Yeah, but yeah, essentially, yeah. you know, his point was he had, was a formalist and counted on the institutions to work. And so he was going to just stand there silently when Barr did whatever uh, and was going to let Trump do whatever because he trusted, you know, everything to work out in the end. And it's this sort of like just so story where you're like, oh, yeah, you know, I have no responsibility to do something because I trust that our institutions will correct the problem when you're in a position of power and authority. And I think that's absolutely shameful. And it really um, undermines, you know, it's sort of it's it's a way of, of like Pontius Pilate washing your hands, like you're absolving yourself of all responsibility. You know, the reality of the matter is our institutions are not prepared for something like this completely. Our institutions, we have strong institutions, but our institutions are not prepared for a president that is going to use the powers of the presidency to try to undermine the uh, justice system, to undermine investigations against himself. It's not prepared for the president to be trying to get uh, use our foreign policy, which the president has brought authority on, to try to get other nations to help him in his you know, political campaign against his rivals. It's just not the way our system is set up. And if we don't do something about it, this could become the new norm in the United States. Yeah. And my my retort to Rod Rosenstein is you are the institution or you were the institution. You know, it's when you're in it, that those are the when you, we talk about institutions, we are talking about the people in them upholding their oaths and what they believe to be it, what is in the best interest of the country over things like party loyalty. Um, so it's kind of especially rich for him to say that as though he's some, you know, detached bystander when he was literally one of the main players of how that whole thing unfolded. Yeah, I, I have to say we haven't heard a lot from Rod Rosenstein in a while. <laughs> uh, he made a brief appearance. Uh, you know, I, I will say, you know, it seemed to me like it, it was clear that the criticism of him had gotten to him. He wanted to defend himself. And I have no problem with people defending their positions and themselves, but he should just come out and say that and actually present 
his view, whatever it may be, and his defense of himself, whatever it is, and let it stand on its own uh, two legs rather than these sort of veiled subtweets and and you know uh, awkward shots against other people that I think uh, were 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 not I don't, well received with good reason. Well, Rod is a weak character. I mean, just as a like, I think he goes whichever way the wind is blowing. He's kind of the Aaron Burr of you know the saga. <laughs> I, I, I mean, it. like he's like you know, talk less, smile more kind of guy. And you know, if it's Robert Mueller, he's going to go with Robert Mueller. He's a stronger person than him. And then when Barr comes on the scene, he's going to go with Barr. Like he has no actual um, backbone of his own. Um, At least, Aaron, well, Aaron Burr shot somebody uh, and killed him. I don't know if <laughs> I could see Rod Rosenstein doing that. Uh, I don't know if he would. would he doesn't strike me. He strikes me as a very cautious type. Um, uh, I will say, um, you know, I, one subject I do want to talk about uh, is, you know, something that's been happening uh, recently. You know, there's been this movement. Uh, a lot of people, whenever I'm on Twitter, I see it constantly. People are talking about it, you know, saying, like, let's stop using the term quid pro quo. I get journalists yeah. talk to me about this. I see it online. I see there's a movement. Let's stop. You know, it's basically saying let's stop using the word quid pro quo. These are Latin words. No one knows what the heck they mean. Let's use the words bribery and extortion to, or, and or extortion to describe this. And I think that there is something to that um, because I will tell you, I try a lot of cases. I've tried multiple cases this year, try a lot all the time. And it is true that you want to use very straightforward, simple terms that everyone can understand. You don't want to use mumbo jumbo that people don't, you know, don't know what it means. One, the, one issue I have with this, though, is that I don't believe that bribery and extortion actually fit this conduct uh, very well. I think that they, you can make the point, I think that from a common understanding, this is kind of like extortion. I think it's mm -hmm. harder to explain how it's bribery, um, but it is kind of like extortion, and certainly it's an analogy. I said that it's in the spirit of extortion. Yeah, there you go. That's accurate. I think that's accurate. But And, and I worry... That if we use these terms, that what's going to happen is Trump and his defenders, who really don't have much of a defense now. I mean, you and I are racking our brains a moment ago trying to come up with what's their defense. <laughs> will suddenly have an actual defense, which is they can sit there and pick it apart. I mean, as a lawyer, I could explain to everybody why this isn't technically extortion and why no one would prosecute it as extortion. But that's beside the point because it's an abuse of power. It's clearly an impeachable offense. And getting involved and in, getting caught up in those legalisms is hurtful. On the other hand. You know, I will say when I try cases that I often choose terms that are not precisely accurate because I think it is important to make some psychological points of the jury and I'll let the other guy explain why it's not quite accurate. Um, so I, I understand the strategy there, but I'm I, I'm ambivalent about it uh, because I think it could potentially I, my understanding is that the Dems are adopting the extortion language and I think it could potentially backfire. Yeah, so this is the same play that happened with collusion, right? And I think it, it goes to exactly what you wrote in your political piece, um, Renato, which is that the presidency is sui generis, right? Like, it's unique. It's its own thing, and it doesn't have particular descriptions of, of bad behavior um, because our criminal code is meant to apply to everybody, Um I mean, also the president, but, you know, a lot of things that what, what, what makes things impeachable with the president are because he holds the office that he holds. So we're not going to have crimes in the U.S. code that only apply to literally one person. Um, that would only be, you know, problematic if the president of the United States does it. And so you end up in this kind of no man's land. So with collusion, what happened was, you know, you throw out this word collusion, which is a little bit like quid pro quo. It's kind of, it, it, it on its own does not have kind of legal significance as, you know, um, you know, condemnable behavior in a way. Um, because you can, you can apply it in a lot of different contexts and it can mean different things in different contexts. Um, on the other hand, the uh, reflexive response um, in the case of collusion was, okay, well, if collusion isn't a crime, conspiracy is. And what happens is, as you noted, when you start to mention specific crimes, you're raising the bar because crimes have elements. 
they have very specific things that you need to prove to show that they're wrong. And so, what, you know, same thing with quid pro quo. You can say, hey, we're not going to use quid pro quo. We'll call it bribery and extortion. Bribery and extortion are very specific crimes that require very specific things to be shown. And the bar is too high. Um, to encompass or to really describe why what the president specifically is doing is wrong. And so you end up in this gray area. And I think that that's why it's so important to just understand what is this office? What is the power that this office holds? What is the trust that is put in the person who holds this office? And why is this behavior really, really bad for everybody? Um, And I think, you know, that's hard to convey. I mean, in the case of the collusion, like, it's just really bad to be welcoming uh, assistance from a hostile foreign adversary who is weaponizing stolen information against your opponent. Yeah. That's just bad. That's just bad. Agreed. I, you know, um, I don't know how, you know, you, maybe is that collusion? Is it conspiracy? Like, you know, it, it's hard to put in, but it is, if you just simply look at it, it is prima facie bad. And I think that what you were saying in your piece is the same thing, that, yeah, maybe quid pro quo is too vague or, you know, doesn't resonate. Bribery and extortion are too extreme. Let's just look at what is happening here. This is a person who is using the power of his office, his awesome powers in the realm of foreign affairs to basically, you know, uh, strong arm another country, which is reliant on our assistance for basically its survival, uh, to do something that's going to benefit him. I mean, it's really hard to argue that that's wrong. And I think what we get bogged down is, and, and, and what has happened in the last three years is, we keep wanting to figure out what, what we call it, right. as though the name matters. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't. It's the conduct that matters. I agree. Kind of what I liked about this quid pro quo thing is it sounds sort of sinister or bad, and everyone kind of knows that it's bad, <laughs> but we're not getting caught up in the legalisms of it. I, I want to get past that, you know, because one thing that there's this myth that's been generated, and some of it's been, I think, implicitly created by a lot of legal analysts on TV, is that the, like, the legal system is going to like solve all of our problems, that like some yeah. bevy of lawyers from in Mueller or the Southern District are going to come out and like lead everyone out in chains or something. It's like, not going to happen. And our legal system is not really equipped to handle the president doing this. I mean, if this was for a legitimate purpose— it wouldn't be wrongful at all. I mean, if Trump told the Ukrainians, okay, I have a favor, though. We need American – we're trying to build up American jobs. Can you guys buy a lot of you know, automobiles from the United States? Can you buy 1,000 you – know, can you commit to purchasing 10,000 American cars and importing them this year? You know, that would not be problematic um, because doing things that move the interests of the country forward and using the levers of power that our government has – to move that's called negotiation. That's, yeah. yeah, I mean, that's what presidents do. And if he was like lower sanctions, buy our products, whatever, that would be fine. The issue here is that he was using the power of the presidency to help himself politically. That's what it was about. And it was not political in the sense that, look, I understand that doing official acts can have a political benefit. Like you can pass a tax cut or something and that benefits you know, you politically, this was literally like, hey, you know, it's almost like contribute to my campaign. It was something like investigate my opponent in an election. And it's even worse than getting just campaign contribution for it. And if you don't understand, if you're willing to just with a straight face, say, I don't really I'm not bothered by that. And I've had conversations with Republicans who say that they're not. Well, then I have no hope for you. I mean, it's just it is what it is. If you don't see that as wrongful, I think most people do. And I and I think the, the, the Democrats should just prove up that conduct. Call it abuse of power, quid pro quo, whatever they want to call it. And if people want to say, oh, that's A-OK with them, uh, just shake your head in disappointment and disgust. I don't really think calling it anything else will change their minds. But I suppose it may help low-information voters who who literally just listen to 30 seconds of something and are like, oh, bribery sounds bad or something. I don't know. I mean, maybe yeah. it influences them. I, I suppose there is an argument. I think there is an argument to be made on the other side, but... I don't know. Yeah, I mean, no, it's true. I mean, extortion and bribery, again, the spirit of them, of those crimes get to the the idea of what was going on. So they don't, you know, like you said, you can get caught up in the technicalities. I mean, the other thing to remember is abusive power was specifically contemplated by the framers as a basis for impeachment. Yeah. And this was at a time when there was no federal criminal code. 
This was a time when the states were incredibly suspicious of a strong central government. We didn't have a robust federal criminal code until the early 20th century. So, you know, to suggest that anything impeachable has to be something in Title 18 is really inaccurate from just a historical perspective. But what the framers contemplated was exactly what's like two things that are going on right now, which are self-dealing, using the public power to benefit yourself. This is why bribery is listed as a um, explicit grounds for uh, for impeachment, but also to that they wanted to avoid any kind of foreign influence um, in our political processes. And you know, I, I agree. I think it would be ideal if there was a way for Democrats to focus on those two things: self-dealing, foreign influence. That's what this is about, um, not necessarily quid pro quo or bribery or extortion. Yeah, it's just that there has to be some, you know, I will say this as a trial lawyer, uh, There, you have to have some very quick theme that sort of explains the case. And, you know, for better or worse, I think this is going to be quid pro quo. I mean, the, the if the Dems are saying extortion, 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 I suppose that'll suddenly become a word. Um, the issue there is, you know, extortion is usually... You know, when you put somebody, yeah, the threat of force or threat of some sort of imminent harm. And it's weird here because it's nation state to nation state. It's like the United States of America to Ukraine saying, you know, you know, if you do this to help Donald Trump, we will, you know, whatever. So it's it's bizarre. Um, It's it's weird to think of it as extortion. We would not consider, for example, you know, did George W. Bush extort Iraq? I mean, it's just weird. Uh, to think of it in in those terms, the issue here is the abuse of power, right? And I'm surprised that they also haven't, you know, really hammered home the separation of powers issue, which is, you know, he's really trying to make himself a king. I mean, you know, the the Congress's power of the purse is it's one of its most potent, if not its most potent, tool um, to check the president, and he was just trying to circumvent it. I mean, the same way that he's done with, say, declaring a national emergency, but he's now doing this, you know, in the realm of foreign affairs and to benefit himself. Um, so he's really undermining the entire kind of structural and functional integrity of our government. I, I don't know if that would resonate, but it, I haven't seen that angle of it being emphasized as much. I mean, he didn't really have the discretion even if he wanted to say we want you to create more jobs, he 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 did not have any discretion to put conditions on those funds. Period. Correct. I mean, it wouldn't have been a abuse of power. It would have just been a toothless threat if he said, "Well, I'm going to hold these up," or what you know. And it would have been, as you point out, it would have been a, a violation of separation of powers. I could I could see that. In other words, you know, that would be problematic for totally different reasons. I, I suppose you, that's right. Uh, because Congress, gave, you know, appropriated these funds to go to Ukraine. If you're like, I'm going to hold them up unless you whatever, you know, create jobs in Ohio. I mean, it, 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 it's the same as Trump ignoring a pronouncement of the Supreme Court. Right. Yeah. And just saying, I'm not going to observe Like, I don't agree with it. I'm not going to, you know, that is the entire power of the judicial branch is to say what the law is. And so if you ignore that, you've now completely upended the foundation of the Constitution and your oath to uphold it. Um, but I don't know that they're going to go as big picture as that. Yeah, I think you, you do have to keep things very simple. Um, one thing that, the, the you know, what I usually try to do, you know, if I had to say what is the number one thing that I am trying to do as a trial lawyer— it's always to be the one to tell a simple story, to force the other side to tell the complicated story. And so I oversimplify everything, make it very, very easy to understand, put things in very simple terms. That's how I try complicated cases. And um, I think if I was approaching this, I would try to have it be very simple, too. You know, he abused his power to, you know, to, to you could even use the word to extort because you're not saying it's extortion, but, you know, to extort a... a Another, you know, a country that needed our aid um, for his own benefit, you know what I mean, or whatever, for his, to investigate his political rival. Keep it very simple. Repeat the same point a lot. Um, and, you know, one thing I think will be interesting, we should talk a little bit about, uh, Asha, we've got, you know, tomorrow we're going to be watching this testimony. 
it's going to be interesting because we're going to have a different format than we're used to. I mean, we're used to politicians asking five minutes of questions, two of really two minutes of a speech, three minutes of really badly formed questions. Here we're going to get, after opening statements by Schiff and Nunez, we're going to get, it, it appears, Dan Goldman, the former uh, Southern District um, uh, and, uh, prosecutor and former, I think, MSNBC legal analyst, is going to be uh, asking questions of the witness. And then he'll have 45 minutes to do that. Then Nunez or his staff person is going to do that. And then it'll go back and forth until they run out of questions. That's much more conducive to getting real examination. I think it'll be interesting to see. And I wonder whether Nunez is going to have a lawyer of his own do it or whether he's going to try to handle the questions himself. Yeah, I haven't heard anything on that. And I think that that is a game changer in a lot of ways. And I wonder if Republicans have sort of underestimated you know, it's not going to have the theatrical value that the five-minute rounds did. Um, and it, we saw with, for example, the examination of Corey Lewandowski by Barry Burke uh, when he testified. I mean, a skilled litigator can be incredibly powerful um, because they don't go down the rabbit holes. Um, that the witness is trying to do it. And if anybody hasn't seen it, I would recommend that they go and watch that exchange because Corey Lewandowski, you can just see his demeanor change as he's being questioned by Barry Burke, um, who's clearly a skilled cross-examiner. Um, he becomes kind of almost submissive in a way because he knows at some point that he can't get away with you know, the, the narrative that he's trying to push. And I'll just add that the witness, the, the majority of witnesses that are going to be coming forward aren't going to be hostile the way that Lewandowski was. I mean, any of the hostile witnesses, Trump isn't even allowing to come forward, really. So, um, exactly. Yeah, I, I think that I, I think that this will be a different kind of public. I don't want to call it a spectacle, but a, a public, you know whatever, television viewing, um, than what we have seen and hearing so far, in my opinion. I think it's going to be more powerful. Yeah, I think so, too. I think so, too. I mean, a good examiner. So one thing that, you know, what to look for when you're looking at a direct examination, which is what this is. So a direct examination is when the person's putting on their own witness. The lawyer should almost fade back in, into the background, and it's the witness who's going to be really Telling highlighted. The story. Yeah. yeah. So a good direct examiner is going to do a great job of helping the witness tell the story, and you know now they've had this deposition. They know what the um, they know what the witness is, um, you know, going to say. Uh, you know, and they and this will enable them to ask the right questions and whittle it down, uh, so that you know we have um, you know I, I, you know a very coherent story uh, to be told. So I think it'll it should be very good. I think it's going to be much more compelling than what we usually see in these hearings. And we should hear a whole story being told. Uh, and if I was Dan Goldman, I would try to figure out a way to tell that entire story in 45 minutes. Right. And he, he's not limited to 45 minutes, as you said. I mean, when Nunes is done with his 45 minutes, it gets, comes back to him. And, you know, conversely, I think a good cross-examiner, and correct me if I'm wrong, Renato, will ask leading questions to which he or she already knows the answer, uh, and that are going to require yes or no answers. You don't want, as a cross examiner, as a cross examiner, to have an open-ended question that allows the witness to basically give more than what you want them to reveal. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, that's usually how it goes. I mean, you usually always ask leading questions. Leading question is just like, like you said, Asha, kind of where it requires you know yes or no answer. You know, you didn't. Um, you know, you didn't communicate this specific request to Ukraine, did you? You know, you didn't um, speak to Donald Trump about this subject yourself, did you? So this way, this, right. or you didn't alert anyone to your concerns, did you? Right, or whatever it may be. I'll call, yeah, exactly right. Depending on the witness, some witnesses didn't. So that'll be, um, you know, that you don't know what Secretary Pompeo did with this cable you sent, did you? So there'll be all these questions that could be asked. Um, you know, sometimes if you're really, I, I'll just say this, you know, if you're a really, really good cross examiner, cross examiner, sometimes you do ask questions that you, that are open-ended or that you don't know the answer to. I do that sometimes. Because you want them to like, 
get caught in a trap, basically. Well, basically, because I know no matter what the answer is, I've got them every way, whichever way they go. But that that I wouldn't. I never tell young lawyers to do that. That's like something you've you have, you've done it a long time. Um, but the point is, uh, but that's very rare. So you're yeah. It's it, certainly you know what I would expect is you know them to focus the questioning on. It's just going to focus in certain areas, trying to you know draw out whatever their themes are. Um, you know, the limits of their knowledge, you know, to Bill Taylor, you don't know what Donald Trump did here. You don't know what he told this person. You weren't in the room here. You weren't in the room there. So there's going to be a lot of questions that are going to, you know, just sort of explain the limits of what the witness has or try to highlight certain themes that they have. That's what they're doing it right. I, I suspect I could be wrong. I, I have no idea what Devin Nunes is going to do, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's just sort of some goofy theatrics uh, that are co- to contrast with the very serious questioning by the Democrats in an effort to sort of try to turn the whole thing into a circus and convince people at home that this is just partisan bickering. Yeah, that's my sense, too. I was about to say the same thing. I mean, I, I don't believe Devin Nunes is a lawyer, A of all. No. I, okay, he's not. Um, and, yeah, I expect him to actually do more of the talking during the 45 minutes um, and kind of go down his own conspiracy theory rabbit hole. Yeah, I think that's right. And then, you know, if he has a staff member do it, the staff member could do a better job. But, you know, I, w- I you know, we'll see whether he's willing to cede the floor to that person or not. Um, you know, I think a staff member could try to draw this stuff out. But, you know, we'll see we'll see who they have and whether that person's a skilled questioner. There is on the House Intel Committee staff for the Democrats, a couple of former SDNY federal prosecutors who, you know, who do know their stuff and are very experienced questioners. Well, Asha, what are you looking forward to tomorrow before we wrap up? I mean, is there anything in particular that you think uh, listeners should be looking out for? I think we've covered most of it. I mean, my last, you know, the the question where I had the two-parter and I said it might be good to save the second one for the end. Oh, is, yes. Do you think, so So this is, we're, we're still right now in the House and the hearings and, you know, kind of the airing of the evidence, as, as it were, uh, before they present their articles of impeachment, um, which they'll presumably vote on, and I think we expect them to vote yes on impeachment, and right. then it would go to a trial. And I'm just wondering, do, what what odds do you place on senators actually convicting? Oh, you're removing from office? From office yeah, I mean, I think it's not zero. Oh, okay. Well, I, I that's fair. I don't think, you know, I, I think there's... A, a greater than zero percent chance there's a nuclear war tomorrow. I mean, there's nothing is sure sure <laughs> in life, um, but I I wouldn't bet my I wouldn't bet my life on it. I, I wouldn't bet your home and your life savings on that uh, removal from office. Uh, but sure, I mean anything's possible. I think, you know, for what it seems so far, but I don't know. One thing I will always say and make clear to everyone: I am not an expert on the psychology of Republican senators. I wish I was. I wish I could read their minds. Uh, but I can't. You mean you're not a, you're not a dentist? <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> um, uh, so I don't know. Uh, but what I would say is, all, by all indications, you're looking at what I see right now is if the vote was today, there'd be less than three votes, Republican votes, to remove. Um, even one would matter because it would show at least some bipartisan uh, support for removal. But I, I don't. Uh, hold much hope that 20, which is what it would, would, would take, would, are going to vote for removal. Um, but, you know, things can change. I mean, there's clearly a lot to the story we don't know. I mean, we don't know what Mulvaney was doing and what his real role was. We don't know what all these, you know, additional things that Bolton would have to say. I mean, there's certainly pieces of the story we don't know. We also don't know what Donald Trump's going to do. I mean, right now he's making life difficult for the Republicans. You know, if the guy got, if the guy got on TV and said— you know, I did condition the aid on this. I did it because I really think Joe Biden was doing something wrong. But I realize now that I shouldn't have done it in that fashion, and I'm sorry. And all the Republicans came forward and said, you know, we, he's, he did this, but we all think it censures the right penalty. It could take a lot of the wind out of the sails of what the Democrats are doing. And that's what the Clinton team would have done, something like that. Um, you know, like some, Trump is not going to do that. No, of course not. Of course not. In fact, I think he's the biggest wild card here in right. terms of, like, what am I looking out for? I'm looking out for Trump really taking an extended trip to crazy town um, as this happens. Yeah. Uh, because I think he—I I, I think his ego cannot handle it. 
Right. I think that's the wild card. That's what I was saying. If things could change because of Trump. Like, Trump could defeat Trump. I mean, if, if Trump is removed, it's because he's done something or some development has occurred that makes it, that, that changes the mind, makes it that these Republicans who have thus far been willing to turn a blind eye to anything he does are not willing to stomach it. Um, I, I don't know what that would be, but he's already making their life difficult. Uh, he could continue to do so in the face of mounting evidence. And, you know, if he goes off on some tangent or, like you said, does something crazy, um, then I could I could see some potential movement. And, and, and just to that point, Renato, I mean, let's just remember that literally everything that has happened to him so far has been self-created. Of course. The appointment of the, the special counsel was because he fired Comey. The obstruction part of Mueller's report was all about his attempts after he fired Comey to, to, you know, to keep, to, I don't know, to try to fire Mueller and all of these other things. And this entire Ukraine issue was self-created literally the day after Mueller testified is when he did this. So, you know, he does not seem to have the capacity to kind of learn and reassess his behavior. Um, and, yeah, I, I think he he will be the one to watch um, as this goes forward. And, you know, he may have a Colonel Jessup moment on Twitter where he just, you know, I don't know, confesses to everything or confesses to something else and it changes the game. Well, we'll see. We've already had Mick Mulvaney go on TV and confess, so... Uh, and, it, and it's funny, we, people don't even remember that nowadays, right? Um, it'll be interesting to see uh, if, you know, e- even if Trump got on Twitter and confessed, would these Republicans, you know, not vote to remove anyway? Um, right. It, it's sad, but very possible. Well, thank you, Asha. It's been a pleasure as always. I've learned a lot from you, and I can't wait to talk with you again uh, after we've had some of this testimony come out into the public. Same here, Renato. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. 